You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Saturday, December 4th. I'm Trisha Crimmins. A violence prevention group in the Bronx is taking on the recent uptick in crime without relying on police. Marisol Rivera, an organizer with Save Our Streets Bronx, says alternative methods are needed to deal with the increase in crime. Violence is like a disease, you know, that spreads. You can't tell a young person to put the gun down and don't replace that with something. Eric Adams wants to go all in on cryptocurrency. He's ready to welcome crypto companies with open arms, but logistical issues and a lack of political support could present challenges. This city was the empire state. We made empires. Now we are destroying empires every day. This is the center of innovations. All this and more on Uptown Radio. You eat pancakes with applesauce, play your dreidel, and from all sides, Hanukkah guilt. Money comes pouring in. What holiday could be better than that? Winter. Outside it's cold, a bitter frost. The windows are frozen over, decorated with beautiful designs. The sills piled high with snow. Inside the house, it's warm and cheerful. The menorah stands ready on the table, and my father is walking back and forth, his hands behind his back, saying the evening prayers. When he is almost through, he takes out of the chest a candle, the shamas to light the other. We're talking about, but he pretends not to hear. Quietly, slowly, he walks over to the cupboard and begins to count out some money. A cold shiver runs down our backs. Our hands shake. Our hearts pound. My father coughs. <clears throat> uh, children, come here. Huh? Uh, what is it? Here's uh, Hanukkah money for you. And for Uptown Radio News in New York, I am Alma Bouvet. A memorial was held last night for a 30-year-old Columbia University graduate student who was killed in Morningside Park this week by a man who randomly targeted him. Over 2,000 members of the community came together to remember David Geary, a student in the Department of Engineering. He was from Italy. Lee Bollinger is the president of Columbia University. He was young, and he was deprived of his life and taken from us by an act of unfathomable inhumanity. The NYPD say they've arrested a 25-year-old man from Washington Heights. The suspect is facing multiple charges, including murder, assault, and menacing. Five cases of the new Omicron variant of COVID-19 were confirmed in the New York area. Four were in New York City, and one was in Suffolk County on Long Island. In a joint press conference with Mayor Bill de Blasio, Governor Katie Hochul says that New Yorkers can expect the variant to now be spreading in the community. Hochul is urging people to get vaccinated and get their booster shots. 
De Blasio says religious and private school workers are now required to get vaccinated with at least one dose of the vaccine by December 20th. New York City Police Commissioner Dermot Shea says he'll step down once Eric Adams becomes the new mayor on January 1st. That's according to news website The Gossamist. Shea led the force during the pandemic and Black Lives Matter protest. He was criticized by activists for a police force that reacted to demonstrators with violence and spread false information about them. Shea also opposed the Blasio's ban on chokeholds being used by the NYPD. Adams has said he will replace Shea by a wi- with a woman and is expected to announce that appointment in the next couple of days. It's a sunny day today in New York City. Currently, it is 47 degrees outside. It's the highest expected for today. Tonight is going to be partly cloudy, cloudy with a low of 36 degrees. Alma Bouvet, Uptown Radio News. When the pandemic hit and schools all over the country adapted to distance learning, Working moms were forced to figure out how they could take time off from work to supervise their children. Now, the vaccine is finally approved for kids, and most schools are back in session full-time. Moms are returning to the labor force, but what impact will this have on New York City's economy? Fordham University economics professor Janice Berry joins us now. But to get started, um, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, percentages of women in the workforce are still lower than they were in 1990. Can you talk a little bit about why this sort of inequity has endured despite the 30 plus years of social progress that has transpired? All we can figure out, and this is starting in 2000, is that some of this was a function of the lack of any childcare, any kind of family support. We didn't even have the earned, uh, you know, excuse me, the um, a ta- a child tax credit back then. Uh, Frankly, there is no country in the developed uh, pantheon with which we would compare ourselves that uh, cares so little about children. And we must always, as you've started out, uh, uh, talking about women being the prime caregivers, it goes without saying that if children are not prioritized, then women will try to pick up the slack. And that may mean a lower standard of living, uh, staying out of the workforce, working part-time. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point and it's very enlightening. Um, uh, now kind of focusing on just specifically New York City, Um, A November 2021 report from the Citizens Committee for Children found that over 40% of New York women ages 25 to 54 with children were not working this past spring. How did women's absence from the workforce during the pandemic affect New York City's economy? Uh, Women are a large proportion of what we call the uh, service-oriented economy. I think uh, service industries have been hit uh, harder. And I connect that to uh, the disproportionate representation of women in service industries. As we know, uh, men tend to be um, still concentrated, believe it or not, in what we would call the goods producing sectors. And that would include manufacturing, that would include construction, that would include you know, those um, occupations that, uh, well, uh, men just tend to predominate in. 
Oh, interesting. Okay, so will women's return to the office strengthen New York's economy? Yes, I think it will strengthen New York's economy. I think uh, that New York has already embraced what the Biden administration is seeking to do on a national level so that the New York economy will be stronger way before the rest of the nation. Uh, We're willing to tax and we're willing to spend the revenue to get these things done. And that's what it takes. It needs to raise the money through taxes and then spend it on the people who need it most. Uh, What about women who might never choose to return to work? Might the city not be able to return to pre-pandemic economic levels without them? Look, here's the bottom line. Two-income earner families are now the rule rather than the exception. Well, it takes two, especially in New York, uh, to make it. So based on that assumption, to be honest, I do not expect there to be a long-term withdrawal of women's labor from the New York City labor force. Yeah, absolutely. And that totally makes sense. Yep. Um, My last question, and you've kind of touched on this, but uh, it's worth asking, uh, how might New York City workplaces be able to better accommodate women who will still have to care for their children for non-COVID related reasons? you know, uh, Bill de Blasio, uh, he was able to push this stuff through. So we have the foundational policies of the paid sick leave, of the free uh, pre-K, of uh, some uh, protections for flex time. Oh, I I know I missed this. Um, Paid paternity or uh, maternity leave. So uh, there is not an economy in the world who does not uh, uh, see the writing on the wall. If they want to be competitive in the global economy, you have to have every uh, a capable human being with two hands working. That means that we have to provide women who tend to be the caregivers of the children with foundational support so they can work in the labor force. So uh, uh, without that, uh, New York City will never come roaring back. That was labor economist and Fordham University economics professor Janice Berry. There are fewer people on the street since the beginning of the pandemic, and that's led to a spike in crime. But violence prevention programs aren't taking it without a fight. Rather than calling the police, some New York City residents... are looking to these programs for an alternative. Uptown Radio's Simone Johnson has more. NYC has shown that not all crime has taken a dip. Save Our Streets Bronx, a gun violence prevention program, has been taking action to reduce violence in the city for years. Marisol Rivera is an organizer for Save Our Streets Bronx and has this to say about their alternative methods for dealing with the crime uptick. Violence is like a disease, you know, that spreads. Um, 
you can't tell a young person to put the gun down and don't replace that with something. So we try to replace that with a job, with a trade, you know, whatever they want to go back to school, whatever they want to do, we want to meet them there and we want to support them. The lack of people on the street during the pandemic also had a huge effect on crime and the NYPD as well. For Rivera and her team, this was when the crime increased. That's when the violence went up, in my opinion, because um, there was nothing for nobody to do. Before the pandemic, the NYPD was solving almost all of their murder cases. But as 2020 unfolded and homicides increased, the percentage of cases solved dropped 30%, according to department records. Carmen Hernandez, another organizer, explained the difference between SOS's response and the police's. For her organization, the real solution was in better understanding the neighborhood, which in turn made it easier to solve and prevent these cases from happening again to make sure, we want to make sure that there's no retaliation if this happened because of previous incidents. We want to know the backstory so that, you know, we're able to help the shooter, but we're also helping the victim. Um, so there's a lot of layers to the work that is just on the community safety initiative side. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, a nonprofit law and public policy institute, community organizations play a significant role in lowering crime. One nonprofit in a city of 100,000 can lead to a more than 1% drop in homicide and violent crime rates. According to the New York Times, the city has a pretty sturdy collection of surveillance equipment and video cameras, but some are lacking in some of the most dangerous parts of the city, like the Bronx. You know, the information that we get from our credible messengers, meaning that they have a connection to the community, is very different. And so, you know, you may hear things in the news and it may be perceived in a certain way. And when you really find out the story, it can be completely different, right? Like, because when the police come in, it's, it's about um, who, who goes to jail, <laughs> yeah. right? So when we come in, it's about how do we solve this problem? people are rediscovering that police may not always be the answer. For example, the Anti-Gun Violence Employment Program has several crises management programs that help with violence interruption, like school conflict mediation, employment programs, mental health, and legal services. SOS also has a system in place to reach shooters and victims when they reach the hospital. And then, you know, you try to talk them, talk them through that golden hour, which is the most important time, which is in that hour while they hurt while they're traumatized, you know, just to talk them off that ledge and, you know, try to give them other resources and alternatives, reasons why they shouldn't go retaliate. We always make sure, you know, me and Stefan, which is the hospital responder coordinator, whoever we get trained, we let them know, like, you know, it's not nothing personal. If they screaming and they yelling and they carry on, they in pain. They but a key and consistent aspect of SOS is how well they relate to the community they serve. I might send Stephen because he's been shot. He's been stabbed before, so he know what it is to go through that because nobody want to hear, oh, I understand what you're going through and you've never been through that. That's just unrealistic. In addition to being on the ground, SOS also makes a conscious effort to keep track of crime on their own. You can see the very populated areas with, with crime um, and zero in on those neighborhoods. No matter what the crime levels in New York City may be, programs like Save Our Streets are determined to meet issues at a community level to help combat New York's ongoing battle with violence. Simone Johnson, Columbia Radio News. Stop shooting, start living. SOS Save Our Streets.
New York's mayors have always sought to make the city attractive for businesses. And the next one, Eric Adams, is no exception. But his approach will likely involve courting a new and controversial industry, cryptocurrency. Here's Uptown Radio's David Marquez on how the new administration's plans might play out. Just days after his election, Eric Adams vowed to make New York the center of the cryptocurrency industry. We need to look at what's preventing the growth of Bitcoins and cryptocurrency uh, in our city. He signaled to crypto companies that the city will welcome them with open arms and a friendly regulatory environment. Throughout his campaign, Adams has embraced the tech sector in hopes of revitalizing the city's economy as the pandemic drags on. This city was the empire state. We made empires. Now we are destroying empires every day. This is the center of innovations. New York's crypto scene has welcomed Adams' announcements. Richard Levin, vice president of Crypto News, is among those supportive of the new mayor. He hosts a bi-weekly Bitcoin happy hour on the Upper West Side, where novices and experts alike can talk shop over cans of Modelo. Young people in this day and age, they know how to engage in NFTs. They know how to get online. They know how to buy Ethereum. They know how all this stuff works. Levin says that Adams is more open to crypto than other politicians, and he looks forward to the new administration. He's interested in learning. He understands that this is the future, and he's adaptable, you know? So far, there are a few concrete details about Adams' plans. He's endorsed the launch of NYC Coin, an unofficial cryptocurrency that aims to generate revenue for the city. Miami Coin, a similar project, has raised over $17 million for that city, according to Miami Mayor Francis Suarez's office. Adams also said that he plans to accept his first three paychecks in Bitcoin. The city likely won't be able to do that, however, since Bitcoin is legally classified as a commodity and not a currency. But there are workarounds, Columbia Business School professor Omid Malakan says. The easiest thing would be to get paid in dollars and then to use those dollars to acquire Bitcoin. Basically, Adams could use his normal salary to buy crypto. That's actually what his spokesperson Evan Thies told New York Magazine he plans to do. But logistics aren't the only challenge ahead for Adams. Stricter crypto regulations are on the horizon. Critics of the industry point to its volatility and environmental impacts. And in response to these and other concerns, federal officials and congressional representatives, such as Senator Elizabeth Warren, have called for greater oversight. Right now in cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin and Dogecoin, it's wild west out there. And it makes it not a good uh, way to buy and sell things. In New York State, Adams will have to navigate uncertain political terrain. State Attorney General Letitia James is a staunch supporter of the bit license, a type of permit that cryptocurrency lenders need in order to operate in New York State. And since Adams has only limited power to change crypto policy on his own, he'll need support from city council. He does have allies in the city council, and as a new mayor, he'll have some leverage. That's Ross Barkin, a reporter who covers New York City politics. Even though Adams has some allies, Barkin says, it's unclear how many, and progressives are unlikely to embrace cryptocurrency. I also think there are a lot of politicians in the council who really are waiting to hear more. Barkin says that while much of Adams' policy agenda remains vague, his post-election statements show that he wants to present himself as friendly to tech and business. I think Adams is going to want to present that way versus the Blasio, who actually did work a lot with big business, but also clashed with certain business leaders and, and tried at times to um, frame himself as a, as a populist or a progressive, and Adams is not that way. A lot of questions remain, but New Yorkers will have to wait until Adams takes office in January for answers. David Marquez, Columbia Radio News.
New York's retailers welcome the return of international visitors this holiday season. Right now, the foot traffic is really exciting. 2021's challenges are bringing Asian Americans closer to their families and communities. I just know that this is something that I stepped up to do because it was something I had to do. All this and more on Uptown Radio. And for Uptown Radio News in New York, I am Alma Bouvet. An unauthorized advertisement at a bus stop in Crown Heights that expressed opposition to the COVID-19 vaccine was taken down by city officials. The ad resembled one by the New York City Health Department that lists 10 reasons to get the COVID-19 vaccine. The public transportation spokesperson tweeted that the investigation is ongoing. A folding massage table that prosecutors say is linked Gillen Maxwell to the sexual abuse of underage victims by her boss and friend, Jeffrey Epstein, was brought into a Manhattan courtroom Friday. Prosecutors say Epstein uses, used the massages as a pretext for sexual abuse and that Maxwell was sometimes present during these incidents. She denies the allegation and the defense says the, advis- the evidence is prejudicial. Pre- pre- Federal prosecutors have launched a civil rights investigation into a suburban police department. The Mount Vernon Police Department is accused of using excessive force in conducting illegal strip searches. The U.S. Justice Department said Friday it will examine whether the police department had engaged in a pattern of practices of discriminatory policing. The review will include an assessment of the department of the department's use of force, strip and body cavity searches, and how officers handle the evidence. Westchester County District Attorney Mimi Roca called for the federal investigation in late April, citing a pattern of unjustified strip searches and other misconduct. It's still a clear and sunny sky outside. We've reached our high temperature of 47 degrees. Tonight it's still going to be a partly cloudy with a low of 38 degrees. For Uptown Radio, I'm Alma Bouvet. Retailers suffered last year. Not only did people not want to leave their homes, but tourism was severely restricted. Now that President Biden has lifted the ban on travelers from abroad, Uptown Radio's Alma Beauvais says this year's Christmas might look different for New York businesses. For a store like Muji, located on Broadway in Soho, in-store foot traffic when they reopened in July 2020 was... Hmm. Very slow. Very, very slow. That's Nilana Diabro, Muji store manager. Muji is a Japanese retail company that sells a wide variety of household and consumer goods, ranging from plain simplistic clothing, recycled paper notebooks, to white porcelain bathroom trays. Not only were there no tourists, the store was also lacking locals. So we anticipate when we did return back that it would actually be, you know, rushes, people just trying to come back into the stores. But in actuality, customers were calling more than they were physically in the store. So they wanted more of a curbside pickup or uh, can you ship it to me? It was so slow that Diablo says her employees were sometimes falling asleep while working. Over a year later, with most adult New Yorkers vaccinated and international travelers back in the city, she is witnessing major turnouts as we move more and more into the holiday season this year. Men and women of all ages crowd the store again. It's getting busier, very hectic. We're at 
60, about 65% foot traffic than it was last year. Right now, the foot traffic is really exciting. But Diabra notices a change in the way people shop. Customers do not wander for too long anymore. She says they tend to all get to the store the earliest possible to avoid the crowds. But it has the reverse outcome of creating more rush very early in the morning or sometimes late in the afternoon. Because the New Yorkers are still kind of scared to shop physically, she said, Diabra looks forward to welcoming more tourists this December, a month she expects to be very productive with food traffic as of 2019. That's what we tried to compare uh, versus last year because last year it was just really nothing. No, no sales made. It was just us reopening and trying to reintroduce ourselves back to the community. Muji's situation is very similar to what retailers are experiencing across the city. Larissa Ortiz is the managing director of Street Sense, a business consulting nonprofit. She also predicts stronger foot traffic for other places that are heavily reliant on visitor spending, notably the Oculus. Herald Square Macy's and the Rockefeller Center. You know, regardless of whether they were chains or locals, um, the loss of spending is the loss of spending. And, and those mm -hmm. are the districts that are poised to be most positively impacted by the opening of our borders again. Ortiz is a member of the International Council of Shopping Centers P3 Retail Program. She said that because of the accumulated savings and the debt per household at an all-time low, people are very interested in spending. Yeah, I think folks are so excited to finally be able to spend holidays with their families. So there's a lot of pent-up demand for holiday shopping and gift giving, and we are seeing that in the market. I think, um, you know, all the projections I've seen both online and in-store um, suggest that, you know, we're, we might even do better than 2019 levels of spending. The other parts of the city that are less reliant on tourists saw a negligible impact from the travel bans last year. On Fordham Road in the Bronx, for example, retailers did not experience the gap caused by the lack of internationals at all. The average visitor to New York is not going to Fordham Road. An assessment of the area shows that the stores there are local, moderately priced chains that meet the needs of the residents in the Bronx. And in some ways, you know, some of these districts um, in the outer boroughs that are more neighborhood-based have proven more resilient because they have not lost their customer base. Their customer base still lives there um, and is still, you know, able to shop locally um, at those businesses. Actually, Ash Oz, the owner of the clothing store NYC Bronx Incorporation, says people shopped a lot more than they do now. This year, the business is a little bit less than last year. Last year was much better. Everybody got money from the government, stimulus check, <laughs> employment. But now that they stopped receiving extra money from the government, the sales are no longer so good. Still, he is very optimistic that purchases will pick up this Christmas. Alma Bouvet, Columbia Radio News. Both the pandemic and the surge in anti-Asian violence has been particularly dangerous for older Asian Americans. In response, younger generations have had to take the lead at home. But the challenges of the past year have brought them closer to their families and communities. Tandy Lau spoke with members of New York's Asian American community about how they're coming together in these difficult times. Yeah. Oh, okay, Mom. 
That's WNYC reporter Catherine Fung cooking with her 96-year-old grandmother. They live together. Like many other Asian Americans in New York City this year, they face fears of both COVID-19 and the recent wave of anti-Asian violence. You know, I was worried about her for months during the pandemic, and then even when um, the cases, you know, the cases aren't uh, as widespread now, but I uh, continue to have to worry um, due to those incidents of violence that I was seeing in the news. This year, 125 anti-Asian incidents were reported in the city. That's roughly 100 more than last year, and many of the victims are elders. In April, a 61-year-old man was thrown onto the concrete and kicked in the head repeatedly. A month later, a 75-year-old woman was punched in the face. Fung was concerned for her grandmother, who suffers from mild dementia but remains incredibly independent. The conversations weren't easy. I actually try to use like the fear factor mainly. Um, we have a relationship where uh, you know, sometimes I try to say things and I don't really feel like I'm taken seriously, but I try to communicate um, the severity of this. Since a quarter of Asian Americans live in multi-generational households, younger generations have taken charge to protect the more vulnerable around them. For Fung, that means running errands and buying groceries for her mom and grandma. I just know that this is something that I stepped up to do because it was something I had to do. Fung isn't the only one. David Chin Hong, a sophomore at the University at Albany SUNY and a local Queens resident, feels a certain duty whenever he steps onto the subway. Like when I'm out and about and I just see like, I just see like an Asian person by themselves or like we're in the train station, I just like make sure like, okay, I see you, you're over there, just making sure nothing happens. It's not like I'm gonna like stand next to them, but just making sure like I see you. And like, you know, if something ever happens to you, I will intervene to make sure that like nothing escalates involving like you being harmed and vice versa so yeah he recalls watching videos of asian americans being pushed onto the subway tracks those anxieties led his mother to rethink her pre-pandemic commute to the family laundromat business usually my mom would take the bus and the train to go to brooklyn and it was like you know she just kind of brought herself to work right but then the pandemic happened soon the subsequent anti-asian attacks followed my mom like refused to take the mta she hasn't really like set foot on the train like since March of 2020, I want to say. Yeah. His dad began driving her to work. And even as many New Yorkers returned to their subway commutes, his parents continued to carpool due to his mom's fears of violence and COVID. But there's a happy byproduct to all this. Before the pandemic, the Chin Hongs rarely ate together after work and school. COVID started and everyone was kind of like forced to be at home. Uh, we started having more family dinners together and we still have family dinners together now too. We, um, because my parents come home at the same time, after my parents come home, then my mom cooks dinner and then we all eat it together. So that's one thing that we started doing. There are over 1.2 million Asian Americans living in New York City today. That's big thanks to the neighborhood of Flushing, Queens. It's the largest ethnoburb of Asian Americans in the country. At Nanchan Senior Center in Flushing, Queens, local Chinese elders proudly share the stories of their own kids and grandkids taking charge during the pandemic. With bright smiles, they recount stories of countless grocery runs, endless gifts, and daily WeChat conversations. To them, this loving care called Xiao Xuan in Chinese and filial piety in English is nothing new. It's just more important now that they're in a pandemic. One senior, Ru Xiaosheng, believes 
the younger generation's care is a two-way street. In Mandarin, Ru says, yes, our children are worried about us, but we're worried about them too. After all, they're the ones going out every day to work during the pandemic. The only thing we can do is try our best to be safe. Tandy Lau, Columbia Radio News. That's it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our executive producer today was Lynn Tala. Kate Hinchy was our senior producer, and David Marquez was our senior editor. Director Tandy Lau coordinated our studio production team. Simone Johnson was on Soundbite, and Robinson Perez was on the board. Our newscaster was Alma Beauvais, and our instructors, Jennifer Vanasco and Elisa Escarce, advised our staff. I'm your host, Trisha Crimmins. You can find us online at uptownradio.org or at soundcloud.com slash uptownradio. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening. <laughs>